Hello and welcome to Michigan State University College of Osteopathic Medicine Statewide Campus System MedEd Transformation Podcast. I am Dr. Deb Young, Director of Faculty Development, and I am joined this morning uh, with Lisa Lofman, who is an emotional wellness consultant with the Michigan State University Health for You program. Good morning, Lisa. Good morning, Deb. How are you today? I'm very well. I'm very well. Glad to be here with you. Yeah, glad to have you. Um, I really want to thank you uh, for joining me today. And uh, to get us started, why don't you tell us about yourself and your journey in wellness and resiliency? Well, I would start by saying, you know, for the first 10 years of my life, I was just pretty uh, relaxed and in the present moment and just living life. Um, and as, uh, as I continued to get older and navigating the K through 12 system, uh, which tends to help us learn how to use our critical thinking and how to, how to process information, how to learn, uh, um, sometimes we can get so that we start nurturing that aspect of our, our thought world. Um, and it sometimes pulls us farther and farther away from our, our sort of natural reflective place. Um, in the meantime, we end up in middle school where the, our perception of threat and the threats around us for, in terms of social rejection uh, start to amp up. And um, we put those two things together. We put uh, fear of rejection and a desire to keep ourselves safe uh, along with this uh, processing mode of thinking. Uh, and we can really just get caught up in constant threat assessment and safety rules. And that happened for me. Uh, and so, you know, where, for example, as a second grader, I was a pretty natural athlete. By the time I was 13, I was thinking about my, I was thinking about my performance and worried about my performance and worried about the future of my performance. So I got farther and farther away from my natural ability uh, to play softball. Um, I also got farther and farther away from just hanging out in my innate mental health and well-being and got more and more caught up in my story. Um, and, you know, that happened from like age nine to 29. So like a good couple decades. By 29, I had two degrees uh, in clinical social work. Um, I wish I remembered more about my actual course instruction uh, in social work because the mindset, imposter syndrome, anxiety, at this point, almost panic disorder um, was happening for me. And so, you know, I was in a busy mind while trying to learn. And so not, not as much got in and um, I didn't get to have like a really profound experience with what I was learning because it had to go through all the noise in my head. Um, and then after I graduated with my master's degree in 1991, um, I worked in substance abuse uh, um, treatment and then ended up uh, in a hospital employee assistance program. And uh, that system was going through a major merger and um, it wasn't going well. It was not, it was not a, a, an easy time for the employees of either system that were merging together. 
So they brought some trainers in to try to help us uh, get our bearings so that we could, you know, uh, make changes and, and make the system survive. Both systems had been in the red um, and the community was at risk of losing uh, their hospital, you know, their, two of their hospitals. Um, and the trainers that they happened to pick were folks that really talked a lot about um, how to uh, reconnect with, uh, in a moment, uh, our innate health and well-being. Uh, our creativity, our common sense, our wisdom, um, and to be able to know you have it, which at 29, I didn't know. I thought everybody else did. And as a social worker, one of the cardinal values of social work is to honor the inherent worth and dignity of all people. And I think if, if we could give truth serum to social workers, the, the thought in their head is uh, that's true for everybody, but perhaps me, right? And so... Um, you know, being able to know I have that innate health, like I didn't believe them when they started to tell me that, but as I started to look for the truth of it and started to experience it, my story moved farther and farther away. The percentage of time that I could connect with my health and well-being grew. So I know I have health and well-being and I know how to access it when I need it most, which is often when the circumstances, like the external barriers and the external circumstances are the most daunting and so to be able, even in those most daunting moments, to notice uh, that I'm struggling to have practices that help me reconnect with that health, and then to be able to come from a value-guided perspective from that health uh, has just been in such a better way to live. And so my learning about that process uh, became sort of the focus of the work I do here on campus, both as a MSU employee assistance counselor for 20 years, uh, and also then as an emotional resilience educator, because I would like everybody connected with our institution to, to be able to learn that too, uh, and to be able then to teach that to people in whatever fields that they have, that they're connected in. Thank you for sharing uh, your, your story to uh, wellness and resiliency. And, and you are doing some great work in helping others empower themselves on, on their journey. Um, I know that we, we've started down a, a collaboration um, with others from the university. Uh, can we spend some time talking about that program and, and what is envisioned for mm -hmm. uh, going forward? Yeah, I appreciate the, the word envision because um, I would say it's an emerging collaborative. Um, for a long time, as I've developed the model that we use at health for You to teach about resilience, um, I have been focused mostly on faculty, staff, and graduate student employees. Um, but the training and how helpful it is to people when they have it, um, I have long thought uh, is, you know, would be equally helpful to, to any person connected to our institution, regardless of their role, um, that an undergraduate incoming freshman um, uh, who we know from research uh, are more likely to have diagnoses of depression and anxiety before they get here, um, and then dealing with all of the things that they, they confront when they start college, that that, uh, that would be a population that would benefit from a comprehensive, um, I think repetitive uh, training and messaging to help them develop some skills that then once they have them, they'll have them 
for the rest of their life. Similarly to uh, somebody who becomes a new dean chair or director uh, has maybe never been in a leadership role before and has a lot that they're managing and new, new challenges coming at them. If they're an emotional, reactive, psychologically rigid person and then they're still keeping themselves safe in, in those ways, um, the shadow they cast on the people that work for them is, is tremendous. Um, I think if we had had um, more um, uh, emotionally resilient uh, uh, leadership that the Nasser scandal would have, uh, you know, uh, unfolded differently. And we still would have had a perpetrator in our community, uh, but the way we navigated that might have looked and felt different. Um, and so across the university spectrum, I envision that there would be a, an agreed upon set of skill building opportunities that we would try to scale and try to have available to to everybody and we would go out of our way to make a material that was relevant to different populations but the kind of core pieces we were trying to make sure people have would be consistent across that like the same teach the same skills to all spartans everywhere in a variety of format and reinforce that over time with communication and brand strategy and curriculum infusion. And um, so it would be hard to come here and not leave with skills. I'm glad that you said that because um, earlier you said that, you know, we all go through in middle school that social rejection and the process of becoming fearful of keeping ourselves safe. And if we don't have those skills or don't, have an opportunity to get those skills. And now I'm going to pick on the, med the medical field for a minute. Then we go into medicine, still having not gained wellness or resiliency. We go into medicine and, you know, go through medical school, go through residencies, or, you know, become attendings and faculty. And, and physicians have this feeling that they have to be superheroes. Um, that's a lot of noise to navigate um, and, and feelings to process. How, how would you um, suggest that we infuse this into healthcare careers? Well, there's so much in that, in that, in that question, Deb, you know, the, uh, the, I would want to start by saying, you know, it isn't just the medical career, but the cultural messages that people get, uh, you know, for example, related to gender. Um, and in, in like American work culture, the messages we get about um, uh, meritocracy and, you know, pull yourself up by your bootstraps and, you know, uh, buck up and soldier on and, um, you know, uh, never let them see you sweat. Uh, there's this, the individualizing uh, of, of our experience, um, uh, you know, is a precursor to the trouble that we see. And then in addition to that, you put on, you know, you put on the white coat of, of um, invincibility uh, and, and then add a dash of imposter syndrome 
which is going to try to like if everybody if anybody knows i don't know everything on these rounds or whatever um then uh then then i'm gonna lose some status uh in some way and so we get super armored up and self-protective about what we don't know and that pulls us away from having uh an authentic learning environment where people can get better at their craft um, and so you know it sets us up to be if individually people are armored up and and have safety um safety protocol if you will psychological safety protocol to keep themselves safe and distant uh, we we are then we aren't having good interpersonal conversations uh, we aren't having good leadership discussions and the psychological safety of our environments plummet uh, you know some of the first research on psychological safety which is just sort of a group construct for trust that uh, measures in a workplace or an institutional setting uh, you know how safe is it to four things, bring your whole self to work. Um, how safe is it to collaborate and share information? And, you know, are you going to be respected in that process? Or is someone going to try to steal your data or, you know, kick you off of being authorship on, on an article? Um, so uh, how safe is it to collaborate? How safe is it to, to make mistakes and, uh, and talk about mistakes? And then um, the last one's super important. Um, how safe is it to challenge the status quo like how much room is there for us to to say there's something not right about this or i think maybe there's a better way if we have super psychologically rigid leadership uh you know all of those things diminish and uh and then it's just not a, and then it's just not our 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 best wisest outcomes don't happen and mis more mistakes happen in the in the medical field it's a higher risk of uh, uh, medication uh, mistakes uh, and negative outcomes for patients um, so that's a, quite a ways away from your original question which I'm not even quite sure I recall no that that's quite all right I'm actually glad that we um, we traveled down down this path um, because re recent I mean recent data definitely suggests that somehow some way um our, our healthcare field we, we are resilient we we've proven that this last year in covid that despite everything the the faculty themselves are resilient but yet burnout is still so prevalent and so you kind of hit on a little bit like the psychological safety and things like that so is this really more of a systems issue is our system set up for failure? I would, I think a lot of our systems are broken. Um, a lot of our systems don't support the people who work in the systems and don't support the people who uh, are consumers of the system. I think that's true for, you know, so many of our larger systems, the mental health system included. What I think is, you know, like I recently did a self-care training for um, some nurses uh, for continuing education. And um, the person who asked me to come talk shared an article um, that uh, was really about addressing the foundational cracks in the nursing care environment. And the outcome of the article uh, was uh, to address nurse burnout, uh, leaders must focus on repairing the care environment rather than 
uh, individual resilience building. And um, I think that that's a dangerous sentence. It's a true, it's true in some ways and dangerous in some ways because to just provide individual resilience training and self-care, uh, which I wanna, which I want to suggest we should call stress mitigation instead of self-care, and I'll tell you why in a minute. But without addressing the four foundational cracks in the nursing environment, uh, you know, isn't going to help us fix the environment, so it isn't going to help us uh, provide better places for those folks to work and do their care. The, the foundational cracks are visible. It'd be like having cracks in the foundation of your house and, and uh, just making sure that the people in the house are practicing mindfulness and um, interrupting unhelpful thought patterns and um, you know having good care, right? It's like you still have cracks in your foundation and the house is still gonna fall down. However, if you only address the changes that would repair the foundation of the nursing care environment, those cracks were identified as uh, that, that, that violence at the point of care is escalating, that one in four nurses are assaulted, uh, even more witness the assaults of their coworkers, so the environment's not physically uh, safe, um, that uh, they feel like they have to make compromises in, in their care delivery because of, of this, this patient-nurse uh, census and ratio. There's some discussion about whether that's actual or whether that's perceived. I think it's probably a both and. Um, the, the third foundational crack is that staff bounce from one traumatic experience to another to another. We have this like stacking, um, stacking uh, traumas um, and, and don't have time to process them, like a conveyor belt of stressors. They don't have time to process. Um, and the last crack that was identified was that new technologies and new responsibilities and work streams have made it a more isolating job. And so people don't have as much camaraderie and social support in the work. Those are all really identifiable, necessary. There needs to be not just conversations, but, you know, uh, a directed action to try to fix and change some of those foundational cracks. In the meantime, the people who are currently working there are suffering. And some of the resilience training would help those folks navigate the current system with its cracks uh, in a way that would uh, be more sustainable, that would protect their own uh, physical, emotional, spiritual, and relational health, um, that would reduce the amount of folks that may end up with uh, addictions and addictive numbing practices to just suppress the stress instead of actually navigating the stress. Um, these are all things that are important. And, and so you, you, put, you put the stressors with then this superhero coat that you're talking about. Um, and, and you have, you know, things that are outside of people's control that they can't address, but also um, this hiding it and not letting people know you're struggling part of it as well. So the idea that it's the idea that it's more a systems issue than an individual issue is is something that you know I would challenge. Um, I really do feel like we need to be working on both levels. Uh, otherwise, it's like you know having having some having people in a study where you have a treatment, but you're not giving the people who have the condition the treatment until later. 
right? So I feel like we need to be working together in institutions to identify and fix the cracks in the foundation and help people have the skills to help them do their current life more on energy saver mode and not resisting and resenting and railing in ways that are just like having your car in park and your foot on the gas. That's not good for the engine to do that. Lisa, I'm so glad that you said that because when I saw the most recent data come out saying, nope, physicians are, are resilient. We're good. We're, we're doing what we're supposed to do. Let's now focus on the system. It, it took me back a little bit. I was like, so we're going to stop focusing on the people and just focus on the system. So I'm glad that you reaffirmed <laughs> that really attention needs to continue on both levels. And maybe we need to start doing more at the system level because we've found a good framework for the individual level. Um, but at the same time, I'm, I agree with you 100% that we still, it's definitely both. But you made a when good I, point. You, you said something earlier. You're like, I'd rather call it stress mitigation rather than self-care. Yeah. Before I talk about that, I want to just really speak to your point here because, you know, the most common word I hear for folks in the medical uh, community uh, when they describe how they're doing is exhausted, um, uh, burnt out and exhausted. When I've been asking folks to recognize the three elements of burnout, um, it's usually over 50% of any audience that I'm in that ex is experiencing all three elements of burnout. Uh, and those elements would include um, emotional exhaustion, like just caring too much for too long. And so you're just emotionally overloaded. Um, depersonalization, which is sort of a distancing from things where like you just kind of, you, you know, you just kind of can't care like you normally do. So somebody shares something with you and you feel like you should have some care about that, but you just kind of can't muster up the energy to care, which for helpers is like, who am I? What am I becoming? Right? Like that, that can take us down an anxiety path right there. And the third one is a decreased sense of accomplishment. Just this sort of sense that it's all futile, like it doesn't matter. Uh, like what I'm contributing isn't even making a dent. So half of the people in the, in the sessions, at least half, have been experiencing all three. Um, my unscientific data would say that the, the number of people feeling emotionally exhausted is about 70%, right? So, you, so, so if you take that with like, those are pe people that work in the system and you can't just think that it's nurses and doctors and medical assistants that are feeling this. It's everybody. It's the environmental services staff. It's also the, the leaders. And so you have people needing to fix systemic problems and the people fixing those systemic problems are exhausted and burnt out and not able to be, they don't have a, a good rest plan. Uh, they don't have a, a you know, so they're so they're not so they're not probably uh, drawing from their deepest wisdom and their greatest common sense. And and in those reactive moments, they get fear-based and reactive and um, uh, protective. They armor up, and so we don't have in the moment our best leaders leading, right? Because they're because they're not at their best because of all this too. So which is why I don't think you can separate the two. I think. You know, we need to have uh, wise, resilient, rested, uh, daring leaders making those systems changes. Uh, so the other part of your question about uh, stress mitigation, 
I believe it's a term I made up, but I'm not entirely sure. So I'll put an asterisk to it. But when I teach self-care, uh, you know, I can teach self-care and I can help people see uh, mindful, mindful uh, self-compassion um, and give them the skill building. But if they don't feel like they should need it, um, they won't, they won't take the time to practice it. So on one hand, you have this white coat, superhero uh, invincibility. On the other hand, there's a lot of folks in the medical profession that, that would have uh, what has been termed a, a human giver syndrome. And I first read about human giver syndrome in a book called Burnout by uh, uh, Emily and Amelia Nagoski. Um, it's a really useful, helpful book. I would want people who are, are uh, exhausted uh, in, the, in, in the medical profession to maybe take a look at. And human giver, giver syndrome um, is kind of rooted in patriarchy, um, but it's this, it's, it's, so it's gendered, but uh, folks across the gender spectrum can have human giver syndrome. But it's this uh, pretty ingrained pattern of thinking that sort of says, my job is to give. My job is to give to all the people, uh, no matter the cost to me, um, because that is what I am. I'm a human giver. My job is to give to the human beings whose job is to just be. Right? My job is to give. Uh, and inside of the context of that, um, even suggesting to ourselves that we need someone to give something to us is just not part of the programming. And so uh, if we do feel like we need something, we tend to shame and guilt ourselves about that, should all over ourselves, as I say, and, we, and then we hide it. And um, we, you know, sometimes we can even punish ourselves because we've, now we feel like a failure uh, and we're not, we're not being who we think we're meant to be. And it's just a pattern that, that sort of spins on itself. So if, if we're talking to someone who has human giver syndrome, uh, kinds of ideas, um, and you suggest self-care, they're going to go, yeah, yeah, I'll get to that right after I do these 5,000 other things for all these other people who, who, are, who need things. Um, and since the flow of people needing things never stops, the self-care never happens. So one of the changes I think could happen in systems is to reframe that as, uh, as, it, as it being important for the employees who work here to have uh, well-developed stress mitigation protocols for themselves, sustainability plans for the people, and that that would be something that we would be having conversations about, supervisory conversations about. Uh, it would be part of what, you know, what our performance conversations would include how's your stress mitigation plan going. It would be brought into like, this is something you need to do as, a, as part of the context of work, not something you do when you're done with work and you're at home. And so we would be learning about how to complete the stress cycles more as they happen and that that would be integrated and celebrated as part of our work that we would not see this is a quote from Dr. Brene Brown. We will not see high quality self-care as a distraction from the work. It is an integral part of the work. And I feel like that's one change that faculty could make is to try to start having that be seen as a work function. 
And so the other day I was talking with somebody who was having a real hard time because they lost, they've lost their dad recently and unexpectedly. Um, and, you know, I was encouraged them to you know, take some time in their work day to, you know, to, you know, don't have to ask for time off to uh, do some self-care in the context of their work day. And, you, you know, you, you would have thought I just said the most like strange, uh, bizarre thing to them, but uh, their ability to take some time in real time when it, when they need it during the day, as they move about their, their role, um, it, it's going to help them be engaged in the work. So how do we help people see that differently? And how do we as a system incorporate that differently? Lisa, they, two, two points here. Um, I probably would have looked at you like you had a third head if you said anything about doing self-care during the work hours, only because it's kind of taboo. Like how in the world could we take any time of the hours that we're giving um, our institution to even worry about self? Um, but you, you bring up a great point. Like I can't do my job effectively if I am not myself taken care of. So um, I'm just gonna I'm just gonna ask a question, Deb. Uh, uh, do you take morning and afternoon breaks? Um, and by I, and by that I mean like actually step away and allow yourself to have a moment where you're not processing and you're off the clock. No. So I I I didn't either. I you know uh, I, it's something I needed to try to learn. It was more helpful when I renamed them for myself because as a human giver with human giver syndrome uh, um, uh, while I won't go take a break because that's slacking somehow um, if you frame it if I reframe it as it's a mid-afternoon reset that I'm going to go and do this practice right I'm going to walk over to Beaumont Tower which is not too far from where my office is when we're when we're on campus uh, and I'm going to allow myself to have five to seven minutes where I just notice the the, the movement of the breeze of the leaves. Um, I actually hear Beaumont chime. Um, I notice the faces of some people. Like I'm, I'm sitting on a bench for a minute and I'm awake, but not processing what I have to do next or what I just did. I'm not rehearsing or rehashing. Uh, and just letting myself settle like a snow globe for a moment. Every time on my way back to the office, I'm more clear, more focused, uh, more ready for what comes next. Um, I'm, I, it gives me a chance to fall back into like witnessing myself be in my day and making value guided choices rather than just spinning around. Vast majority of people don't take their breaks. No, we, we don't. And, and in fact, I, I normally have about an hour, hour 10 drive um, to get to campus uh, when I, when we're on campus. And I even felt that I needed because of my commute was so long that I also needed to maximize that time. And so if there were phone conferences I could have where I didn't need content for my computer and it could just be discussion that I was even filling that time with my job, mm -hmm. which um, now instead of the commute, my day just starts earlier, which is fine because I, I love what I do. And, and that's, that's another thing. We, we love what we do and we're so passionate about what we do. And, and yeah, I, I think, I think I just self-diagnosed myself with the human giver syndrome on both 
my personal and my professional being a mom. Yep. Yep. Everything for the kids before anything for mom and then work just being the nature of being in healthcare and the oath that we, that we take, um, you know, patient centered medicine, patient centered care, everything that we do is for the patient. Um, I, I think we unfolded something here that, that really has a lot more that we should explore. Um, and yeah, talk about. And so imagine this too, Deb. Imagine, um, uh, you know, a nursing staff or a medical team of eight people, uh, and all of them operate like that. So none of them get what they need. They don't have a reset. They're working, 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 and working both ways. Uh, uh, let's say fifty percent of them. So four of them are experiencing all four signs of burnout. Let's throw in that. Some folks have caregiving issues and some folks have a grief issue that they're processing, which when people are grieving, um, it, can be up to, it can be up to two years before they're back to full functioning in their work role, right? So, and, and because even before COVID, we were an aging population, we had more people grieving in the workplace at a given time. We're like, a, you know, a couple of decades ago, maybe we'd have one of our coworkers grieving. There's, a, it's more likely for us to have three or four people on our work team that are actively grieving. So the functioning level is going to be a little bit lower just because of that process. Which, by the way, we're given three days to process before we're back at work, right? So all of that's going on. People are exhausted. Then, like, how much does that generate? Sort of the caddy workplace. Uh, reactive. It's like we're trying to get energy out of gossip. We're trying to get, you know, we're just trying to get through. So we're not our best selves. But if we were to spend part of that time on our commute or having some, you know, there's both like meditation, but there's also doing the things that I do in my life more meditatively. I still don't have a lot of time where I sit in meditation, but I, when I'm doing dishes, I tend to try to do those dishes in a state of mind that allows me awake mental rest while doing dishes, as opposed to when I get done with the dishes, I'm going to do this and then I'm going to do that. And then I'm going to do it. Oh, I should have done that. Oh, I'm just a terrible mom, blah, blah, blah. Right. Like there's what, there's what we're doing. And then there's the state of mind we're doing it in. And so you have exhausted people in busy states of mind who think the other person's causing them the stress, and then we have all this reactivity. So what would you tell people or suggest as our, as our first step in stress mitigation? Because I'm going to start using that instead of self-care, stress mm -hmm. mitigation um, in, in helping people. I think the first step has to be do our own work first. So I love that you just saw something for yourself, Deb, because you're in a role that impacts a lot of people. And so I would want you to lean into the learning. Uh, uh, and the, the easiest way, I think, to start with that is uh, to either get to the author's um, uh, podcast themselves. Uh, Brene Brown did a podcast with the authors from this book uh, on her Unlocking Us podcast. Um, it's a great interview. I highly recommend. I, I heard the interview and then I got the book and I took a look at it. Um, and, you know, and now I can incorporate that language into the, the conversations that I'm having with people. So it takes, like we're trying to build a critical mass of people in a system 
who see something in a new way and want to kind of make space for that paradox shift. So, you know, if a faculty member is learning this for themselves and can name human giver syndrome in addition to white coat syndrome and that sort of superhero thing, if we can name it, we might be able to shift it. And so if a faculty member is starting to see that and then in the process of educating new healthcare providers, um, that becomes part of the conversation, right? It, it, you know, we would build a critical mass of people that would interrupt the way we think about rest and performance in the medical field. So, so with that, I mean, you brought up rest and performance and kind of the, the expectations in the medical field. There's definitely some intrinsic barriers to wellness in general. So the long hours, inconsistent work environments, changing of teams. You talked about teams. that Our teams change so rapidly that it's hard to get to those team norms. There's intense emotional experience, exposure to trauma, missing important life events just because of the nature of the work that, that we do, lack of control over schedule. Even if we have this critical mass of people that are educating and promoting the stress mitigation and the resiliency and, and things like that, how do we break down some of those intrinsic barriers that are there? Or is that just something that in the back of our mind, we need to accept and say, yes, these are here, but I can still do this. You know, I would want people to be reflecting on those things and to say, are they really, do they really have to be this way? Are there ways for us to rethink how we do our business that would make some of those things start to change? I think some of those things are going to be a natural piece uh, of, of being an ER doc, for example, um, you know, the exposure to trauma. Uh, um, but like, like, you know, what are ways to think about, like, if we see that, to protect our, our workers and the quality of care over time, that we need to have uh, protocols in place to help people, to help the humans process the trauma and stress they're experiencing. That's the piece that's what, what institutionally, what is our process to help uh, the people that are doing the work process their trauma and their stress. Because this idea that that doesn't need to happen um, is why we're having an increase in, in uh, you know, medical professionals committing suicide, completing suicide. Um, you know, it's like firefighters go and they go out to these fires and they see kind of horrific things. And then they come back and they clean the truck and they take real good care of the truck. And then they go home and they do the superhero thing at home and they do all that. It, and it just gets layered and layered and layered. Uh, and sometimes it's not until someone retires that, and they slow down that all that stuff starts to come up, right? So, you know, in many fields where there's first responders that are experiencing things, we're, we're, not, we're, not, we're not creating protocols to protect the humans doing the work. That would be one thing I'd want the system to change. Some of those pieces, you know, like the like like I you know I don't know enough about how residency works, but does it have to work in a way where exhaustion is such an intricate part of it? Like I think at one point there was sort of a thought that that 
that created better physicians? Is that true? Like challenging some of the assumptions that make some of those intrinsic barriers happen would maybe be a good thing for a system to do. But the ones that are there, right? Sometimes like, sometimes when it really is like, this is just what it means to work in this field. Um, like I used to get really stressed out about case note completion and charting, right? And, uh, and I think the shift for me has been that, you know, I still have case noting, um, but my psychological experience of case noting has started to shift. And so sometimes it's, if we're resisting and resenting that, which is part of our profession, that's a habit that we have that's going to burn our energy and make us, you know, less sustainable over time. Uh, like, I, like I often say, if I'm going to live in Florida, I'm going to experience humidity. I can either hate humidity and resist and resent humidity, or I might want to have a, a more relaxed humidity navigation protocol, right? So, uh, so there's so a piece of it would be, you know, how do we not resist and resent that which is part of the profession? Uh, sitting that next to, not in an either or, but a, a this and also these other things, would be like how can we continue to change to make it easier to do this, easier for the humans to do this work. That, that reminds me, like, so, you know, it's just something that has to be done. Um, and it reminds me of uh, a book that my uh, residency program director uh, gave us very early on. Um, and it was called Eat That Frog. Like, and it was kind of the sentiment of, you know, you have a lot of things to do every given day, but there's always one that you're dreading and that you hate doing, but just do it. So eat the frog, just do it, get it out of the way. And then the rest of your day will be more peaceful. And, and in, in the context of writing notes, I mean, we, we have a backlog all the time of unfinished notes that, you know, need to get done before we can process billing. And, and we've, we've kind of used that same sentiment of, you know, accepting that this is, this is a requirement for what you have to do. And it's do a great it even, even though you don't like it. Yeah, no, even though you don't like it. Go ahead. The, um, it's, a, it's a great piece of the work. It's like an intrinsic part. It has to happen. But I used to go from, you know, dreading it and then avoiding it. And then they would stack up. I used to talk about like an avalanche of case notes. And then I would have the, the heavy, the, the increasing dread of that. Um, when I started to think about what would it be like to have a, to have a more meditative experience of that task. Um, it's like when I recognize I have a value guided thing. I like to be more caught up with that now. I don't like the avalanche feeling. So I'm pretty committed to trying to have a protocol that gets that done more in a more timely manner. Um, so I'm not out of policy about it at all. Um, so in the process of that, even while I'm doing those, if I'm doing case notes and I'm like, oh my God, I can't believe how many case notes, why did I let them get so far away? I hate when I do that. Uh, I should know better. And now I'm going to have hours and hours and I can't be with my kids and I don't even like that. All that noise, right? Versus the way I do it now, which is to say, I'm going to step into a moment of case noting. I'm going to... Uh, uh, take from the pile, I'm going to take this one chart and I'm going to very mindfully, I'm going to be aware of how I'm sitting in my chair. I'm going to notice my breath. I'm going to take this one case. I'm going to ask myself, what do I need to chart about that? And I'm going to chart that. 
And when I'm done with that, I'm going to set that aside. I'm picturing actual manila folders. I know that that's not a thing anymore, but, and then take the next one. And so I, any one of those is not that big of a deal. When I'm thinking about all of those and judging myself and being mad at the system and why does this even have to happen? A lot of, uh, honestly, a lot of charting, uh, well, in, in the medical field, a little different. In my world, a lot of the charts, like, they never get looked at by anybody. So you could, you could say, you know, here's my day, here's my day on paper. I can't believe I have to do that. And, and I could spend all that friction. When I'm mindful about it and I drop my resistance to it, uh, and also try to do that in a in the most calm, grounded way. Like I think of it as energy. I want to do my case notes, but I want to do them on energy saver mode so that when I'm done with them, I'm not as depleted as I might otherwise be and can be fresher for my kids or my community. Lisa, thank you for, for all of that. I have, I have one uh, more question to kind of wrap us up on uh, today's hour, we've said a little bit about um, we need to be reflective um, and reflect on what's happened and, and what role does reflection play in wellness and resiliency? Everything, I would say. Um, when, we, when we allow ourselves to be reflective, what we're doing is pulling back away from something far enough to have some perspective about it. I think of allowing ourselves moments of reflection of inviting perspective. Um, and we're so rapid and we're so busy-minded and we're so, like our, our thought worlds are so, uh, you know, active um, that we don't give ourselves very many moments when we're both awake and not actively processing. And when I'm actively processing, I'm processing the thoughts I'm having, I'm not making space for a new thought to come through. And so when my mind was really busy, and I, and I actually do, I do have ADD as well, so I have a rapid brain that was over-processing. Um, and so they could call that a attention deficit disorder, but we could also frame it as reflection deficit. Uh, and the way we're taught to use our brains and protect ourselves we, uh, we, we increasingly uh, get caught up in processing mode and, and we don't spend enough time in receiving and reflecting mode. And why that is so important is we want to value new ideas. We want to value like, oh, that just occurred to me. When I have a new thought, an insight, a sight from within, right? When I have an insight, uh, it changes how I see things. And so if I'm not allowing myself the opportunity for reflective moments, you know, I can't have new thoughts. And those new thoughts are what like helps me rearrange my day in a way, you know, like I remember one time I was running around in a very busy mind and a friend of mine said, um, and I, I was also trying to like, I was in private practice and also working a job for a hospital system. So I was like, I would be engaged with community development and then I would run over and have a session. And, and she just saw my life as like chaotic. And she's like, why don't you put all your private practice clients on one day so that you're not running back and forth, right? And I, and he, and it's, like, it's like her idea was like a ping pong ball that, that hit a moving fan, like it didn't get in, right? And, and in a moment when I was a little bit quieter, I, I, and my, my mental fan was moving at a slower speed and I was reflective about what she said, 
I could see all of a sudden that the reason I wasn't doing it was this human giver syndrome where I thought I had to be available at people whenever it was convenient for them rather than what was convenient for me. And that would it really change. I, I hadn't even offered to see if I could get people to, to, to go on to one day, uh, which when I asked, they were all willing to do and my life got calmer. But even though someone gave me wisdom, it wasn't until I moved into a reflective moment and invited myself to have more ideas about it that I had that life-changing uh, uh, idea and could see what the barrier was. So if we don't build reflection into our lives, like if, like if, if part of the hour-long commute home was spent more reflectively, uh, then you probably would have had a lot of good ideas come to you that you didn't actually get to benefit from because the portal wasn't open because we were processing. True statement. <laughs> so I want, I want you, Deb, to have more moments where you let yourself have new ideas come through in a more gentle way uh, because it's really powerful when you have an insight. Right. Well, I'll definitely tell you, you know, of all the negatives of COVID, one of the positives that has come out of it is especially, you know, I, I think I talked to you, you were on uh, one of our sessions of during COVID for stress mitigation um, in the height of the pandemic. And I think some of the things that I took away from that is, as well as some of the other wellness talks that we've had over this last year um, was a more reflective state. Um, and, and despite being home and being quarantined and not being with my, my team, we have found ways to connect um, that is less disruptive to the day. We can't just walk into each other's office and interrupt whatever's going on. We have to be very deliberate about the time that we schedule with people. And um, I've definitely had um, more quiet uh, time to be reflective as you, as you stated. Um, I, I definitely feel that my personal self-care has increased during this pandemic. And I, I plan to continue, um, continue that uh, when we do go back to the office. And that's why I'm a huge advocate for the work that, that you're doing and that others are doing. And to bring sessions like this to our COM and SCS community. In fact, you are also going to be one of our speakers on June 4th in our personal renewal wellness retreat, um, which I'm excited to have you and others participate in. Um, but, you know, again, I want to say thank you so much uh, for being uh, with me today and um, can't wait to get this conversation out to our community. If I could just uh, share kind of a six-word summary of our resilience training model. Would that be okay, Deb? Of course. Because I think it shows like the whole process. I, th I think of these six words as a scaffolding. Uh, these six words are what I would want to have, you know, on giveaways and t-shirts and, you know, like, you know, having people think about these six words as a framework for navigating difficult situations. Um, and, and I'll just say the six words and then I'll just talk just a, briefly about them. They are, Acknowledge, honor, release, relax, reflect, resolve. Acknowledge what's going on, what we're experiencing, name it. 
honor the emotions it would make sense for a human to have, and particularly you, the human, to have, given that that just occurred. Just honor it, make space for those emotions, let them come through. And then, and then once you've done that, release the energy of the moment, the resistance, the, the resentment, the frustration, like just allow the energy to move so that you can relax back into your innate health and well-being, your very deepest, wisest self, and then reflect on your values. What matters most to me about this situation? Who do I really want to be? Uh, and then resolve to take some action that's value-guided. So acknowledge, honor, release, relax, reflect, resolve. You know, and, and, and you know, throughout the day, I look to those six words to help me figure out what to do next about the daunting circumstances that I'm facing or in. And sometimes it's just me. I can go, oh, uh, I, I'm having an unwanted personal circumstance right now. Uh, I can feel myself really resenting and resisting. And then if I notice that, then, I, then I'm conditioned now to look to the six-word framework. And sometimes it's, I, I'm so caught up, I don't see it. So a coworker or often my wife will say, what were those six words that you, that you share with people? And as soon as she says that, I'm like, oh, look at me. I'm totally, totally cold caught up uh, and reactive right now. I'm like, okay, let me see what's going on. Acknowledge, like it is, is what it is. Given that it is what it is, who do I want to be and how do I want to move forward? And I think that's how we navigate over time in a more sustainable way. That, that is absolutely wonderful. I actually wrote those six words down. I have the dry erase board above uh, my monitors and they are going to be the center of that, <laughs> that dry erase board. So regardless of what else goes on that board, that is going to be the foundation. Well, I don't know if you have like a, like a notes page on your podcast, but I did do a, a, a brief video because I ran out of time with what group of people I was talking with. And so I just did a brief video on the six words. And if you want me to send you that video, if there's a way to link it, uh, you can feel free to do that. Sure, there definitely would be. I, I would be happy to, to link that. And I'm looking forward to our June 4th event. And again, just thank you so much for being here with me this morning. And I look forward to uh, continue to work with you and um, getting this word out and, and, and caring for others. I'm very, very excited about this new partnership too. And I look forward to trying to help as many people as we can. Wonderful. Thanks so much.